Hey everybody, welcome to episode 3 of Cryptids Decrypted. Today I'm interviewing Peter Byrne about his experiences in World War II, hunting the Yeti in the Himalayas, and of course, his search in the Americas for Bigfoot. Alright, a couple of quick notes before we get started. Uh, first of all, if you like this podcast, the best way to support us is to rate it wherever you're listening to it and share it with your friends. You know, share it with your mom, your dad, whoever. Just, you know, this is somebody who you think might be a little weird and a little into cryptids. Second note, I know I said that we were going to be talking about the Jersey Devil today, but I've got a killer guest lined up for that spot, and I wanted to wait until he was available. So we'll be doing the Jersey Devil hopefully next month, maybe a little bit later, depending on when we can get him to come on. And on a last note, before we get started, Rob Lowe, if you're listening, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen our emails or heard our calls, but we, we know you do a television show called The Low Files about cryptids, and we'd love to have you on. Uh, I'm not sure if it's just a miscommunication between your people and my people, so let's just let's just get it sorted, and we'll get you on the program. Thanks again, Rob Lowe. We'll talk to you soon. Let's get on to the interview with Peter Byrne. So just to get started, uh, to give everybody who's listening a little bit of background, I'm going I'm to go through a little bit of your history I found on your website, and, and feel free to correct me if I get anything wrong here, okay? Yes, all right. Yeah, so you joined the British Royal Air Force in 1943 as a part of the Air, Sea, and Rescue Service. You were stationed in India shortly after you completed training, and then you, after that, spent 14 months in the Cocos Island chain? That is correct, yes. Cocos Islands is not a, not a chain, it's a group of islands, 17 islands in, in, a, in a horseshoe surrounding a lagoon. And uh, so while, while you were there, I, I know we talked a little bit about this last time, but you rescued 12 airmen from various crashes, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, being shot down by other fighter pilots, weather, engine malfunction. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, that's correct, yes. And then I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit, there's, there's a lot of information on your website about the, the rescue of the Catalina. Yes, um, in that particular instance. I was on short duty that day, which we relegated to maybe twice a month. And um, it consists of standing by for incoming planes, and um, these are seaplanes, these are Catalinas or Sunderlands, and then taking a power boat and going out to meet them in the lagoon, and then guiding them in uh, to, a, to a buoy where we have them tie up and then take the crew ashore. And that was my job that day with two others, one was Steve Alstred uh, from Reading in England, and the other was um, Jim Whiting from London. And the plane that was coming in is coming from Madras in India, a long flight, maybe 10 hours, maybe 12 hours, depending on the, on the winds. And we saw him coming in. We had radio contacts. He, he was pretty much on time. And he circled at the lagoon, which most of them did, and then turned, and to our amazement, starts to land downwind. Because the Catalina is a, a big, heavy plane. And in this case, um, it was carrying cargo. And uh, also, on board, I think it was 14 men altogether including um, a Canadian, and uh, we were quite horrified. So he came in, and the landing speed was about 100 miles an hour, and um, he came down and he hit the water, and then went straight up in the air, 
maybe a hundred feet, and then came down, nose down, as a huge cloud of white spray, and immediately black smoke. We were running for the boat. We were in the boat. It was a small plow boat that could seat about ten people. And we were we were racing out there, and the, the, the plane was on fire. The right wing was was burning, and huge clouds of black oily smoke. It, it was tilting. As we drew up to the plane, we saw a man lying in the water, face down, and his uniform attracted our attention because uh, we hadn't seen it before. And it was a Canadian, and he had been thrown out of the plane. Uh, we didn't stop. In those days, we didn't know anything about CPR. We would pull them out nowadays and applied CPR. We, we, we passed him. He was close to the plane, only about 30 feet away. And we drew up to the plane, and then also volunteered to hold the boat, not tied to the plane. And Wisey and I went aboard, and uh, there's black smoke, men screaming. We, we carried our six and lowered them down to to Ulster. We, we went aboard through what's called the, the, the gun hatch. The Catalinas had one of these on either side, and we managed to get this open. You could open them from the outside. We carried out six men, and then suddenly the plane began to sink, and uh, we pulled away. And as we pulled away, it was sinking fast. And by the time we got to the shore with our six and horribly injured men, um, it is it had gone. So stretcher bearers were waiting, and all six were rushed to our finally little in February, where we had a Filipino doctor. And we went down and spent the night, Indian family, just volunteering to help as best we could. And two of the men we carried out had died that night. The other four survived. Next day, they were taken by one of our power boats to um, a bigger hospital, um, an army, a British Army hospital on one of the main islands. All four survived, went home, had a good life, and we kept in touch with one of them until recent years. And that was the end. I was involved in half a dozen rescues, and that was the most, um, I suppose you could say, the most vital one, and then just in many ways the most tragic one, because it didn't have to happen. The pilot made a terrible mistake, and that's what caused the tragedy. Wow. That's, uh, that's, yeah, that sounds like a harrowing experience. And now that's, that's towards the, the end of your career in the Air Force, correct? No, I can't be quite sure, but I think that was, um, I think that's 44. Oh, okay. So that's still, that's about a year after. In my website, the, the date may be mentioned, but just offhand, um, we were still at war at the time. The war came to an end for us in August 25. So, it might have been in '44 when that accident happened. Right, and then you stayed in the Air Force until 1947, which is when you joined the British Tea Company. Yes, it took a long time to get for us to get home. There were about one million of us: uh, British Army, Navy, Air Force, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, and they all traveled by ship in those days, and not by air. And um, there were no air services. Uh, the Japanese had sunk an awful lot of our ships. So we literally stood around waiting. I was looking at some of my old RAF documents, in which I've always believed it's 1947 that I got home. It was actually March 1948. So the war being over in, um, in 
in um, August um, 45. We had a long, long wait. We shuffled uh, through Sri Lanka and then through India, Madras and Bombay, and literally waiting to get on ships. So it was a huge movement, and it, it was it's ponderous. It took a long time. So the war ending in 45, I got home in um, March 48. And then I, as, as you just mentioned, I applied for a job with a tea company in London. I got the job, and after a couple of weeks at home with my parents, uh, went straight back to India and was there for a straight five years right. as a tea planter. When you, when you got to India working with the British Tea Company, that is when... It, now, did you have a, an interest in the Yeti before that? I know that's when your, your first expedition, your website said, was in uh, 1946. Yes, I did. I, I had an interest uh, for years and years. I think it goes back to my father telling me bedtime stories when I was a kid a long time ago. Um, well, my first probe, if you like, was when we were waiting in Bombay, and this might have been um, um, the 47, um, I took time off. We had plenty of time. Um, two of us went to my commanding officer and said, can we take a couple of weeks off? And he looked, said, take a month off, if you like. <laughs> Just get back in time to catch your ship. So we went to Darjeeling uh, at Palenheim. Uh, Peter Shepard, uh, who is still living in England, he said. And uh, we spent a month in Darjeeling, where the Sherpas live, and talking about uh, the Yeti with them. And um, and then Peter uh, fell and uh, broke his ankle and had to leave. So I did a little expedition, um, which is very small, myself and the cook and two Sherpas. I just hiked into the lower Himalaya. On the, uh, my, I call it my first Yeti expedition. It really wasn't much. But I spent two weeks and then came back. Then when I was a tea planter, years later, I was able to get into the Himalaya twice with, with probes like that. Because as a tea planter, we were given one month off. Uh, we called it local leave every year. So each time I had that one month off, I went in the Himalaya. And yes, the hunting, I called it. And uh, so... Which, uh, during that time, you met Tanzig Norgay as well, right? Yes, I got to know him in Darjeeling. Um, um, when I was a tea planter, we went up there a lot. It was about 100 miles uh, from where I was based in North Bengal. And it was great to get out of the heat oh, of sure. the Indian monsoon. Because Darjeeling was 6,000 feet, and it's a delightful climate. So quite a few of us young tea planters we would motor out there every weekend. And we got to know the Sherpas, and I got to know Tenzing Nogi. This was before he became famous. And um, socialized with he and his daughters at his house um, in those days. Right. And then for those who are listening and, and aren't sure, Tanzik Norgay was the Sherpa who, who guided Hillary up Mount Everest for basically the famous first summit, right? He was Hillary's companion, yes. The first two men to the top of Mount Everest, Hillary and Tanzik Norgay, yes. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And and now, did so did Tanzik also have an interest in the Yeti? And, uh, I mean, what did, what did you learn from the Sherpas about uh, the Yeti and what they believe in? Well, I learned as much as they could tell us. Tenzing had an interest because his father um, had had an incident years before. He was 30 feet and higher and had to sleep inside at night with 
the door, the stone hut locked. And he said, yes, he got up on the roof and tried to pull the tiles off. So he built a fire and made lots of smoke. And the Yeti went away. That's the story that Tenzin told me. So when I met Tenzin during my second small expedition and spent a night with him, we talked about that. And, and then through Tenzin, I, 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 I met uh, Tom Slick, the Texan, who um, sponsored the, the three big expeditions uh, through um, 57, 58, and 59 that I put together and, and took up into, into the Himalaya. And, you know, in that in all that time in the Himalaya, did you ever uh, see anything or did you find any evidence that, that convinced you the Yeti was still out there? We found some footprints, um, small, five, five and a half inches with five toes. And we found footprints on several occasions. And then people who were with me, when Tom Stick was with me on, on our reconnaissance, he thought he went off with a separate party. He found footprints. And then Gerald Russell, who's one of our companions, he also found footprints, these small footprints. And they fitted to what the sheriff told us about the size of these things, which is about four feet high. Really, four feet high? Yes. Nothing like the Bigfoot here in the Northwest, entirely different. About four feet high, which, which, which would be right with a, with a footprint of about, about five inches. You mentioned the story from Tanzig's father about the Yeti uh, coming in and trying to rip the roof off. Uh, I, now, I, I wonder, when, when you were going out hunting these creatures, you know, did, did anybody warn you off or say that it was dangerous, and were, were any of you worried? No. No, we haven't had any fear or any worry about the things. The general opinion was they're very shy, and if they saw one of us, they would have run. Uh, we were more concerned with the bears, a lot of black bears, and it's a dangerous animal. Um, you will leave you alone, but you can take, you can provoke them by mistake by coming on and starting it. And then they're dangerous. And we met quite a few natives over the years who have been attacked by bear with their terrible injuries. So we're more concerned with bear. Um, the big cat up in the Himalayas was a snow leopard, um, a very shy creature. And... Um, there were no other large animals up there. Sometimes wild boar, very high up, 10,000 feet, but um, they didn't bother us. So we, um, we carried shotguns with us. Um, we used them to shoot a few birds from time to time uh, for the pot, uh, ducks, that kind of thing. So I think, uh, you know, so your, your first expedition, you said, was pretty much, uh, it was just you and a few Sherpas, and then the ones with Tom Slick were a little bit more organized. It sounds like, what were the what were the key differences, and what was Tom Slick hoping to find? Were you, were you all hoping to find the, like, a, a live creature that you could observe, or evidence you could bring back? What were you looking for? Well, we hoped to find the Yeti. Um, we went in groups searching. Um, we broke up into different parties. Gerald Russell took one party, my brother took another party. And we looked uh, for footprints in places that where we might find them, like in stream beds, in sand, and in mud. Our plan was we saw these things to jump on it and, and, and capture it if that was possible. Um, not, not to shoot it, not to kill it. And again, we hoped to find um, remains. And we had, we had alerted all the local shoppers. Uh, that it'd be a large reward if they found a dead one and brought it to us. That was our basic plan. If 
So, you know, if you could go back and you had modern technology, is there anything you would bring that you think would help you find the Yeti now that you didn't have then? Well, yes, nowadays, of course, that the great um, instrument is motion sensor cameras. Um, we would have used those. We, we'd never heard of them there. They'd not yet been invented. Nowadays, were I to go back, I'd probably take about 20 or 30 motion sensor cameras with me and set those out, probably look at using drones to search different areas from the air, and generally much more modern equipment. Right. When I went the first time, for instance, when I was still a tea planter, um, I never heard of a sleeping bag. So uh, at night, um, I and the sheriff's my, my tiny little team, we went out and we pulled up heather and grass and we slept on that with, with a yak's wool blanket on top to keep warm. Uh, nowadays, the, the equipment is much more sophisticated. Sleeping bags and, and the tents are very much better. It was a bit primitive in those days. Do you think the uh, do you, do you think the Yeti is still out there? I know that last time we talked, you had said that maybe you think it might be extinct. I think it might be extinct because across the years I've been back in Nepal, working in Nepal um, through the hunting years, and then in wildlife conservation the last ten years there. And I would meet Sherpas um, from time to time, or I'd meet Tibetan traders coming down from the north. And I talked to them and asked them, has anyone seen a Yeti lately? Or have you seen any footprints? And for maybe 25 years, nothing. Absolutely no reports, any kind. No footprint finds, no sightings. Which leads me to believe the possibility that they may be extinct. In the time I've been in, in the Himalaya and in Nepal, two animals have disappeared and are now extinct. One is the Yeti's target leopard, small jungle cat, beautiful cat, completely gone, not a sighting for 30 or 40 years. And the other is the, uh, the pygmy hog, one of the two species of, of um, wild boar that you find in Asia. One is the big one, the wild boar, and the other one is the pygmy hog. Totally disappeared 30 or 40 years, not a sighting or any news of one anywhere, leading me, leading me to believe uh, that they are extinct. There's also one of the ducks we call pink duck, it was there when I was a planter. There were a few. That's disappeared also. So animals come to the end of the cycle and just die out. Um, comes a point where there aren't enough numbers to reproduce, and um, they just disappear and die out. And I think this may well be what has happened with the Yeti. And, and unfortunately, that's a region that's changing very quickly uh, lately, so it wouldn't be surprising if the, the habitat is dying off as well. So, you know, just one more question about the Yeti before we move on and talk a little bit about um, Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of portrayals in popular culture of the Yeti and in fiction. And, and I, I, I have written I've written one of those books as well. And, uh, you know, based on our talk, I think I probably got a lot of things wrong. Uh, but what do, what do you think of the portrayals in in fiction? You know, because usually it's a big beast. It's very aggressive. And how how would you how would you portray it if you had the opportunity? Well, it's um, and it was it was a primate about four feet high. And the great interest, the great scientific interest, was that it was bipedal when it walked upright. But apart from us in the, on the planet here, nothing walks upright except now, as you believe, you know, the Sasquatch. Otherwise, the great interest was that it was up by walking primates. So there was scientific interest at one time. 
and everything else is on all fours. The bowl of bears. You see, you see a bear standing up just for a few seconds. You see a gorilla, chimpanzees. You see them standing up uh, a few seconds, and then they're down on all fours, being called knuckle walkers. So that was, that was the singular interest in, in, in the Yeti, singular scientific interest in those days. Hey everybody, just wanted to take a quick break and say thanks for listening to today's episode and thanks for listening to Cryptids Decrypted in general. We've had a lot more listeners than we thought we would to start and we really appreciate all of you. If you have a second, uh, please go rate us on whatever platform you're listening to and if you can't rate us, uh, share the podcast around with a few friends. All right, this marks the end of the part of the episode where we're talking about the Yeti and we're going to be moving into Peter's search for Bigfoot next. But before we move on, I just want to say... I'm an author. I've written an action-adventure story about a guy hunting a Yeti in the Himalayas. It's called Whiteout. It's pretty fantastic. We've got like 4.8 stars on Amazon. So if you want to go ahead and search Whiteout, a Nick Fentner adventure, it's some great Yeti fiction. I hope you enjoy it. And I'll, and I'll be honest, I had no idea people like Peter existed in real life when I wrote it. But, uh, you know, now, I, now I'm starting to think it's pretty accurate, other than the fact that the Yeti was supposed to be 4 feet tall. I'll be honest, I, I really, really messed that part up. My, my Yeti was way too big. Don't, don't at me about this. Anyways, shameless self-promotion for my book aside, let's get back to talking with Peter Byrne. We're going to talk about Bigfoot. It's really interesting, and I'll see you guys at the end. Thanks. Tom Slick, he's the one who founded the, the, the last two expeditions for the Yeti, and was it Tom Slick that put you in, in contact with other people in the U.S. to start looking at Bigfoot as well? Yes, it was, yes. I spent three years in Himalaya, uh, 57, 58, 59, and we would walk down to Kathmandu at Christmas and take a week's break, and then walk back up again. And we walked down in December, um, 59, and there's a bunch of mail waiting for us and cables, and there's a long cable from Tom Sick, and basically it says, you spent enough time up there, uh, that's, that's enough chance, give it up for a while. Would you like to come to the States and uh, help me um, search for a thing called the Sasquatch? And I have to say, I have to admit it, my brother and I laughed. We'd never been to the States, and we thought in this country is as, as all the skyscrapers and, and uh, millions of people. So we cabled back to Tom in San Antonio and um, yes, we would like to come. We went home to Ireland, my brother and I. He stayed on for a while and I, I flew over here and went down to San Antonio and sat down with Tom and he pulled out maps of the Pacific Northwest and Northern California to Alaska. And I was amazed at the size, um, three, nearly three times the size of the Himalaya. So I thought to myself, there's, there's a possibility um, of something mysterious, something like a Sasquatch could exist here. And so off we went, starting in um, 57, we set up a base in Northern California, and we went from there. So w- when you were first coming over, you said, were you, were you particularly skeptical of the, of the Bigfoot myth in general? Yes, when I arrived, yes. At first I was, but I was impressed by the size of the area and the enormous millions of acres of forest, um, heavily forested country up here, very rugged in many places, and uh, much of it um, without people living in it. 
um, just U.S. forests. So after a while, I became more convinced, and then I began meeting eyewitnesses, and I found them very impressive. One or two, of course, with the funny stories. But then, among the people I met, there were a lot of very sound, sensible people who spent time in the Northwest and had had an actual sighting. So slowly I became convinced that there was something. And then in the course of our two years, it's, it's actually like two years and ten months of the first uh, Sasquatch searching, um, we found footprints. We found three, three sets of footprints in remote areas. We had to walk a long way in, and they they were very impressive. They were big, 14 inches, five toes. So we stayed up on them. Uh, I mentioned it was two years, ten months, all the way up to when Tom Strick died in an air crash. And that project came to an end. And I went back to Nepal, back to um, big game hunting, which is what I was doing when I, when I first met Tom. Around what time was that when you were when you were first looking in the U.S. with for Tom Slick? January 1960. That's right before. I mean, about seven years before uh, we first see the the Patterson footage in 1967. Yes, and correct. I, and I'm curious what what you think of that photo or that that video because you know looking at it now, I, I know that it's met with a lot of skepticism. I, I think um, that the Patterson Gimlin footage, October 1967. I think it's real. We did, over the years, in my second project, um, which was a five-year project in the 90s, our sponsors spent a lot of money analyzing that film. Uh, I did things like taking it to Disneyland myself, and um, it's generally believed that it's a real creature. And there's a, a large number of reasons. Um, it's, it's huge. But the footage, um, it's, but it's very short, but it's very good. And uh, so, it, to sum up, um, I think the Patterson-Gimlin footage is real. And um, Gimlin is a very fine gentleman. He lives not far from me. I see him from time to time, and I've sat down with him. And he's gone over the whole thing with me about what happened that day. So, so I think, and people who've done any kind of study think that the, uh, they call it the 67 footage is, is genuine. After that, there's been there's been a lot of other tapes to come out as well. Um, and I'm curious, you know, there's the, the Patterson-Gimlin footage is, is pretty much widely lauded as one of the best pieces of evidence for Bigfoot, aside from eyewitness reporting, like you said. But then a lot of people will also talk about Paul Freeman. He, he took a lot of plaster casts. And, I, you know, a while ago, I talked with uh, David George Gordon, who's another enthusiast uh, and expert in Bigfoot. And he, he said that the, the plaster casts made by Freeman were some of the best evidence we had. And I know, uh, you know, again, last time we talked, you, you, you had a differing opinion on Freeman's casts. Yes, I have, I have an opinion on Freeman. He was a very nice fellow. He was a genial fellow. He was basically a simple man. But everything he produced, 100%, was faked. Everything. His sightings, his, his footage that he had, the footprints he said he found, the plastic house, everything 100% faked. There's never been any evidence any credible evidence from Eastern Oregon over the years. Nothing among the Native Americans there, nothing from the settlers, nothing from the pioneers, nothing. Cascades, Peter, ranging up from California, and, um, and, and the coast ranges. Those are what we think of the area of habitat. And the Cascade Range runs north to south, and the, the eastern edge of the Cascade Range 
is, is the edge of habitation. Beyond that, nothing. So Paul Freeman, I must say, a very nice fellow, but 100% fakery. Now, did you ever have a chance to, to investigate his evidence in person or, or meet Paul? Oh, yeah, of course I did, yes. That's why I can talk about it. When I say he was a nice fellow, he was a genial fellow, and um, yeah, it was quite pleasant to meet with him, and quite pleasant to be out in the woods with him. But um, on the other hand, and not this, not just my opinion, it's, it's the opinion of um, all of my associates in the Bigfoot field, that the Eastern Oregon stuff through Freeman is 100% fake. 100% hoax. We talked about this a little bit last time, but I'm curious to hear it again. Can you tell the listeners some of the so, some of the the pieces of his evidence? Like, uh, what are what uh, made you realize that they were complete forgery? Oh, a number of things. Um, I saw footprints that he made, and uh, they were faked. I could tell that. I have a hunting background. I'm, I'm I'm not very good at many things, but I'm good at reading sign on the ground. I can, I can say what a grain of sand is telling me or a blade of grass. And I saw two sets of um, Freeman's footprints. And then the stories he told that were quite ridiculous. And then the footage that he shot um, was typical fake footage, something blurry, walking away. It's like the stuff that Ivan Marx produced years, years and years ago, all, all fake. And then I got a call from a, a TV station in New York reporter was a young Australian reporter called Steve Dunleavy, and he said, we hear there's a fellow out in his story and keeps finding Bigfoot footprints. Would you meet us there? And uh, we'll cover your expenses. So I said, yes. I drove to Eastern Oregon, put up at a motel with the crew. Next morning, we drive down to Freeman's house. I think he'd asked us to come and see him about 8 or 9 o'clock. We had to chat for a while, and we said, what's the possibility of finding footprints, and he said, oh, no trouble. I can find them anytime. Follow me. So he jumped in his pickup, and we drove about 10 miles up into the mountains to a logging road that had thick brown dust on it, pine needles on the side, and we got out, and he pointed. He said, there you are. I told you. And here's a line of footprints, huge 15-inch footprints going down the side of the road and um, heading off. So I said to the crew, and to Freeman, would you all please stand back and let me look at these? Give me a few minutes. So they agreed. So I walked down the line of footprints, which began where we had stopped and we had, where we had all got out of the big ups and so on. They went in and out of pine needles on the side of the road, and they went for 100 yards, and then they came to a complete halt. It disappeared. I couldn't believe it. So I walked back, and then just a second walk all the way down and I could see it in places where, when he walked on the pine needles, he's not making as good an impression as in the dust. So he picked the pine needles and made little ridges along the front of the toes. And again, 100 yards, and they disappeared. So I came back to the group and I said, we made an extraordinary discovery. We have, we have found footprints of the first flying Bigfoot. It landed here, it walked 100 yards, and then it flew off from there. Disappointed, Freeman was furious got in his pickup and took off, and we never saw him again. And that's what he'd done. He, in the very early morning, he'd gone out there with his master feet. He must have had wooden feet carved and made the footprints and then came back. Nobody, nobody can say to you, come with me, I'll show you footprints. Nobody. I've just gone through a period of five years without a single report of a footprint. Right up until recently. We've had some times recently, but um, five years with nothing. So that's 
that's the story of Freeman. Yeah. And there's absolutely no doubt of what he's done. There's no doubt in my mind to this day, in the minds of my associates, that um, nice guy, though he might have been, he was a total hoaxer, total faker. So you, you talk about the, you know, what really convinced you that Bigfoot was real originally, aside from the footprints, was some of these eyewitness reports. You know, you talked about uh, a little bit how, how Freeman's reports were, you could tell from the way that he was telling the stories that they were fake. I, I'm curious, what what are some of the stories that convinced you, and and why why do you believe those stories? I, I look upon it in this way. Um, if somebody says, what's the evidence? I saw it with Native Americans. Every Native American tribe up here um, has a name for these things. Um, one was Oma, one was Sasquatch. Um, I have about 14 names listed in, in my journals, and uh, they knew about it. And the names all meant the same thing. They meant big man, man of the forest, giant man. And that goes back a long way. Um, the earliest thing I've been able to find in an old newspaper was 1785, talking about uh, Native Americans here, finding one of these things. But the next is the footprints, which I have seen myself in remote areas, not just down the road um, and on the edge of the freeway, but way back, where people who, who, who take footprints, they do them where they're going to be found. They do them outside a Safeway store, that kind of thing, but not eight or ten miles back in the wilderness where no one's going to find them. So I've seen these footprints, and that's the second part of the evidence. The third part is the 1967 footage, and then for me the fourth part is the eyewitness reports. And for research that I've done and research for my books, I've interviewed um, two state policemen, years and years of service, an Oregon judge, U.S. Forest Service, um, engineers, uh, surveyors, and all thoroughly down-to-earth people. A lot of time spent uh, out in the wilderness, out in the forest, and to me, 100% convincing. So that's the four sets of evidence, if you like, that persuaded me across the years that we're dealing with something real. The, you know, Native Americans, footprint finds, 67 footage, and then the eyewitnesses, of whom I've interviewed about 50 or 60 altogether. And among them were three sets of people, four in, in a car, another four in a car, and then five in a car. And in that case, I was able to, to sit down with them and almost like cross-question them, what did you see, tell me what it was, and so on. So, and then, as I say, four in a car, four in a car, five in a car, and then recently, last year, seven men. We call it the seven-man sighting, uh, a great sighting. So that, that so the seven-man the seven sighting, you said that was the, the first sighting you've had in, in five years, correct? Yes. Let me think a moment. The last credible sighting we had was February 2005, all the way up to last year. Um, Logging truck driver, very reliable man, part Native American, um, this, uh, encountered one. And um, we believe that sighting to be very genuine. And since then, nothing, right up until June last year, when seven loggers all together uh, saw one approach them on the logging road. And then recently, um, now it's uh, three weeks ago, on a mountain near here, uh, a woman driving a car. Now, I know her personally. Um, she's in the corporate world, fairly reliable, sensible, and she saw one walking across the road ahead of her, disappearing into the forest. 
So that's what that's all we have. Lots of stories, uh, lots of lots of wild stories, and from well-intentioned people, but uh, mistaking natural phenomena, and mistaking sounds, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. So the evidence coming in in the form of sightings and footprint finds has been very very big uh, across the years. So you know, with that in mind, so do you believe that there are still you know Bigfoot or Sasquatch out there? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, of course I do. I, I think there's, um, there are a few. Nobody knows how many. Nothing but the wildest guesses. Five, 5,000, nobody knows. Um, if there were large numbers of them, I think there'd be more evidence, more footprint finds, yeah. um, more sightings. There cannot be very many. But they're still with us right up until three weeks ago. We've had this sighting by Miss Lady, whom I just mentioned. And then before that, in June of last year, a very good sighting by seven men. Now, are you still actively looking for Bigfoot? I know that you live somewhere on the Oregon coast, right? Yes. I live on, in, the, in, in, the, in the coast range, west of Portland. Yeah, be- beautiful area out there. Lots of like Bigfoot statues and everything, too. That's a pretty famous place to, to see them. So, so what, are you, what are you doing now to, to hunt for Bigfoot or keep the search alive? My associates, half a dozen people. Um, including to living near me here. And we do two things. We have motion sensor cameras out, and they are set in, in areas where there have been incredible sightings. And we will move them in relation to, to the time of that sighting. If the sighting was in June, we'll put cameras there in June. If the sighting was in September, we'll put cameras there in September. So we have five cameras out at this time, and we check them. Uh, we hike out to check them every uh, every two weeks, um, and then the other thing is we follow up. Uh, we hear the sighting, we get on the phone, and if it's not too far, it's within a hundred miles. Uh, we'll try and find the person, sit down with them with the questionnaire. Part of it's three four hundred miles away. Um, we, we just just talk on the phone. There was a time when we were driving five hundred miles in a day to go and see someone, but with me it's right down to being um, a hobby. I ran two big projects over the years, two and three quarter years, and then five years. We spent over a million dollars in each one. Uh, so nowadays, it's um, much more easy going. Part of the reason for that is my age. I'm not as active as I used to be. And so it's motion sensor cameras and follow-ups on eyewitness reports or footprint files. That's where we are now. Well, awesome. Peter, I want to I wanna thank you for uh, talking to me again. I really appreciate it. This has been fascinating. Yes, okay. I know. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to um, help. And actually, no, no, no problem if you'd like to call me again. If both of you've been talking about brings up any more questions, open to talking with you anytime. Happy to. For anybody who wants to find out more about you, your website is the best place to do that, right? Yes. Website's the best place to go. And it's not, it's not Peter Byrne. It's Peter C. Byrne. There's a C in there. Right, petercburn.com. It's where they can find my books also if they're interested. Okay, thank you so much, Peter. I really appreciate it, Um, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this, the third episode of Cryptids Decrypted. We'll be back again in two weeks to do another History of the Mystery episode where my friends John, Tyler, and I are going to break down the Yeti legend from start to finish.
One more reminder that going forward, if you want early access or just want to support the podcast, you can go over to patreon.com slash MacAshton, and if you back at the $5 tier or above, you get one week early access to episodes before they come out. And there's also some other great stuff on there. I've got signed copies of my books. I'm putting out brand new fiction every week. And every month, we let users submit a short story prompt that I will then write at the end of the month, and we've had some pretty, honestly, some pretty weird shit. We had, uh, last month was a Bigfoot foot fetish story that, you know, I, it actually ended up being more fun than I thought it would be. So head on over to the Patreon. You can check all those things out. All the stories are up for free. And if you want to support us, that's a great way to do it. Thanks again so much for your support during the launch of these first two episodes. And I look forward to bringing you guys quality content again soon. See you in two weeks.